You're listening to The West Block. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm David Aiken. Mercedes Stevenson is off this week. Last week, Ottawa announced a new round of sanctions targeting 14 Russians with close connections to President Vladimir Putin, including two of his daughters. Putin retaliated with sanctions against 61 prominent Canadians. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says Putin should expect more. And Canada remains determined to be there to support Ukraine, to be there to push back on Russia, including with crippling sanctions of a, of a, of a scale never before seen against a major economy. But are the sanctions having an impact on Putin? Joining me now is Anna Veduta. She is the former spokesperson for jailed Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, and she's the vice president of his anti-corruption foundation. Anna, thank you so much for joining us today from Washington. And I guess uh, the first question we have is there are economic sanctions, there are sanctions against the oligarchs, and Canadians want to know, inside Russia is the perception, are these sanctions working? All sanctions are having impact, both economic and personal sanctions. Personal sanctions are the key here, actually. So sanctioning those who are close to Putin, sanctioning oligarchs, sanctioning um, their family members and enablers and proxies and nominal owners of assets, all of that works. And all of that will have uh, will help to exacerbate the split in Putin's elites. As for economic sanctions, unfortunately, yes, people in Russia start to struggle from them. And this is the consequence of the war that Putin launched without asking the people of Russia and without, you know, getting their permission for that. So, yes, the, the sanctions are working. Anna, let's talk about the so-called information war. How is your organization, how is the West going to get through the propaganda of Putin? How do we get true information about this war to everyday Russians? Yes. So what what Alexei Navalny was proposing uh, uh, with that uh, Twitter thread is yes, launching the well, opening the second informational uh, front against Kremlin by using uh, ads. So he called on um, Google and then Twitter and all the other you know uh, giant technological companies uh, to allocate their resources for to for for the ads that will convey the truth to Russia. So I mean. Right now, my colleagues, for example, uh, we have a, a, we have few YouTube channels, and uh, the, one of it, which called which is called Popular Politics, uh, has live streams on a daily basis uh, covering the events in Ukraine, and we can we can see that it grows very fast. So there is this demand for the truth uh, in Russia. So people are trying to find it. So yes, if uh, if the companies in the West could allocate their budgets to sponsor the ad that will be actually you know popping up to Russians, this will help a lot. Also, of course, supporting independent media that are trying to uh, broadcast from from their broad also to uh, convey the truth, to tell people what is going on there. Uh, that 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 would help a lot too. But what we're doing, yes, YouTube is not blocked yet. Um, Russian government does everything possible to make people who don't support the war to feel very much isolated. Just now, just the, the news that hit today, Vladimir Karamurza, uh, a Russian journalist, uh, a, a huge advocate of personal sanctions, have been lobbying for that for years. 
uh, in the West uh, has been put under the arrest in Russia, and he's facing from five to ten years in prison behind the bars um, for, as they call it, spreading fake news about uh, Russian army, which is, of course, um, it would be funny if it wasn't so sad because he was telling actually the truth. But in, in, in Russia, as of nowadays, saying truth about what's happening in Ukraine is considered fake and is considered something that you can go to prison to. Still, uh, even with these high risks, a lot of people in Russia are still trying to protest this war. And we can see that there are um, murals, you know, appearing, saying like no to war. Although in Russia, you can be, again, you can be sent to prison just for saying war. So you need to understand that there are laws that prohibit to call this war a war, and uh, you must call it special operation. So with this landscape, every every attempt to convey the truth, every attempt to show the real picture of what is going on is it must be supported and uh, you know um, must be put an attention to. Um, I've only got a, a brief time, maybe thirty or forty seconds, and I wonder. I'll ask you this last question: What is it that might stop Putin? This is a very tough question because, as we can see. As we can see, he is not listening that much to to anyone. But that being said, it doesn't mean that we we that we can not do anything. We must, and I am using this word, although I understand that it, it's a very strong word. But we must do everything in our power to exacerbate and to put more pressure on his regime. I can't tell you for sure that you know, like do this and he will stop. No, there there is no silver bullet in that. But we must exacerbate the pressure on the regime from all the fronts. And as I said, as we've been uh, as we've been saying for years, along with Vladimir Karamurza, personal sanctions. Because we are very grateful, yes, that few people from the uh, Navalny 35 list were sanctioned in Canada and United States. Uh, European Union and the United Kingdom are doing a lot with the personal sanctions right now. But it's a little bit too late. But every every bit of delay will make things worse. So we need to act together and we need to act soon because every every day of this war, it not only takes away the lives of Ukrainians, it also takes away Russian future. So, and perhaps gives the threat to the rest of the world, given that Putin does not seem to correspond that he wants to stop. So we must do everything in our power, yes. Anna Veduta in Washington, B.C. Anna, good luck with your work. Thank you so much for joining us today. The conservative leadership race cleared a key benchmark last week. The deadline came and went to get into the race, and eight candidates have filed their papers and paid their $50,000 entry fee. Next deadline to pay the full $300,000 is April 29th. And to check in on the race, I'm pleased to be joined by two leading lights in the conservative movement in Canada, Brad Wall is the former premier of Saskatchewan, and James Moore served in Stephen Harper's government as industry minister, heritage minister, among other roles. Gentlemen, great to have you here. Neither of you have endorsed a candidate in this race, uh, but I know that you would both endorse the idea of a conservative party ending up at the end of it, whoever is the leader, in a stronger position to compete for votes, a stronger position to challenge for government. So looking at what you've seen now, the policy ideas, we've got some talking about health care, some talking about housing, looking at the tone of the way the race is unfolding. Brad Wall, I'll start with you. Do you. What do you think of the race? 
with that goal in mind, building a party that is going to compete for votes at the end of it? Well, we're think, I, I think we're seeing a pretty robust uh, debate around, if not specific policies, then direction for the party. Uh, if the two notional front runners are Polyev and Charest, I think that's the case. There's eight in the race. Um, I noted this week that supply management uh, was became part of the campaign uh, as one of the leadership candidates made that a centerpiece policy. And so I think that's a, that's a feature that we're going to be uh, looking at over the next uh, weeks of the leadership race. I think uh, most conservative members would, would agree, David, that coming out of this, they obviously want to be in a position for the party to contest uh, more effectively for government. Uh, 2020 in 2025 uh, should the uh, NDP Liberal Alliance last that long. But I think, David, I think it's important for us to remember that Western conservatives and, and, and maybe rural conservatives, bluer conservatives, who may have held their noses and voted uh, the sort of uh, voted the, uh, the party way in the last election under O'Toole, uh, even though they might not, not have agreed with what was not necessarily a fiscally conservative platform, not agreed perhaps with the, the party moving towards a carbon tax, not agreed with the leader sort of rushing to, to, uh, to genuflect at the Bill 21 uh, Quebec issue, just post that, uh, that leader's debate. They, they did vote with the party last time. They stuck with it, I think, for the most part. Uh, but I'm, I'm not sure that's the case now. So it's true the party needs to come out of this um, you know, with with more accessible vote, uh, but it it really depends on what the party might have to dilute uh, or sacrifice in terms of policy as to whether that would be in the end successful in keeping the Conservative Party together. That, for example, Stephen Harper was able to do so effectively for so many years. And, and James, let me take that and put a slightly different twist on it to you. When I hear Western conservatives, and of course, James, you're one, a little more West, in fact, than, than Brad Wall is. Um, when I hear Western conservatives talk about accessible votes, it's sometimes is a pejorative term, meaning we have to be liberal light in order to be uh, uh, get votes in Eastern Canada. Um, what do you see about in this race so far in terms of uh, candidates who want to appeal to conservatives unapologetically and yet also come out of this in a stronger position? Yeah, I think it's a bit of an elementary and false narrative to say that, you know, if you moderate, you win. If you're, if you're proud and strong, you lose. I, think, I don't think that's true. I think a lot of conservatives think that the final campaign of the Harper government in 2015, we put some water in our wine. And with Andrew Shear's, Andrew Shear's performance, you know, stylistically, there was a sense that we were sort of a little bit more apologetic in our conservatism. Sort of Stephen Harper with a smile was the narrative. And then with Aaron O'Toole, there's a perception, again, that whether it was on the carbon tax or putting forward a platform that wasn't more stridently so fiscally conservative, that the party put even more water in its wine. And I think if you look at the fact that no prime minister in Canadian history has ever won four in a row, it seems like Justin Trudeau is on the back nine of his time as prime minister of Canada. The next election campaign, certainly after this coalition deal, looks very much like a change campaign where conservatives will be in a position to be seriously considered as the next government of the country. When that's the case, then everybody stands up and says, well, here's what I want my party to really look like and stop being sort of strategic about this and, and cute about it, but be strident and be proud to be conservative. And I think that's why you're seeing Pierre Polyev get a good degree of support because of the, the energy that he's bringing to the campaign and the way that he's sort of being, being thoughtfully aggressive about being proud to be conservative again. And I think that speaks to a lot of base conservative party members who want that energy into the race. But party members and those who are in the race, they do need to make a choice. Do you want to be in politics? Do you want, or do you want to be in government? 
Do you want to be a conservative party that it refines what conservatism is? Or do you want to be a governing party that comes to the table and presents Canadians with ideas that are conservative in terms of their ideological instinct, but are pragmatic and realistic in terms of what Canadians will tolerate in a government going forward? And I think that's the real test of whether or not the party comes out of this as a governing alternative to the Liberals. The, uh, the reason I was glad to have both of you guys you know, on this program today is because your time in government resulted of building coalitions of conservative-minded voters. And Brad, the Saskatchewan party is the greatest example, bringing together liberals who were in a Saskatchewan and progressive conservatives upset at getting beaten by the NDP. And somehow a farmer in North of Swift Current was finding common cause with a voter in suburban Regina, and you built a great coalition in the Saskatchewan party. Same thing with the Harper conservatives, building coalitions of voters. So thinking again about this leadership race, are you seeing, if, if you accept that thesis, are you seeing some, some leadership potentials reaching out to say, these are some of the common denominators where we're going to be conservatives and win, and we have to somehow come to some agreements? Well, first of all, let me say, I hate being on a panel with more because he always says the things that I want to say, but he says them uh, way more. Uh, he says them correctly. But, uh, you know, I, I think he actually canvassed this very question in his last response, uh, David. I would say that it's interesting to watch Polyev's campaign. Uh, it's very, it's conservative, unapologetically so, but he's on this sort of, uh, uh, you know, remove the gatekeepers uh, narrative. He's on... Uh, this uh, let's make Canada the freest country uh, in the world narrative. And he's got some specifics behind that. He ties it back into affordability. And I think significantly he ties these themes into the economy. Uh, and I would say that uh, whoever wins this particular leadership campaign uh, needs to focus on the economy. In 2025 and beyond, I think it's fair to say, well, today, currently in the country and beyond 20, through to 2025, the economy is going to be the number one issue. The economy that uh, individual Canadians face in their household in terms of budget, in terms of affordability questions, and just uh, Canada's overall economic health. And, you know, David, back to your original question, that's what has been, uh, I think, the focus of the Saskatchewan party. That's what brought liberals and Saskatchewan liberals, I'd argue, are a bit more sort of like progressive conservatives uh, and, and Saskatchewan conservatives together and reformers as well uh, when the party was first started first formed in 97, brought them all together, and their focus was the economy. And it has remained as such, you, you know, notwithstanding the fact that we've been through a pandemic. So, and every provincial government's had to focus on that. I, I think there is clarity in that for conservatives. Uh, and I think whoever comes out of this leadership campaign will find it easier to unite the party if they remember the fact that the economy is, uh, uh, that as James Carville reminded uh, Bill Clinton, it is the economy, too, but I think it will be for the next uh, number of years. And James, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that, too. Only have about 30 seconds, but I mean, B.C., the B.C. Liberals, another great example of a provincial party that has built a coalition around free enterprise as the common denominator. What, what do you make of that? Eight candidates in the race with a diversity from different regions, gender, ethnic and generational um, tastes of and flavors of conservatism. The Conservative Party needs to come out of the race, I, I think, more unified than all of its constituent parts. So it's one thing in the race to have some division and diversity and push and pull and people disagreeing. All that stuff is good and it's important for the party to hash out uh, differences and disagreements. But at the end of the day, if all these folks come together and they are larger and stronger, more efficient, more effective, better communicators and come together as a team, I think the Conservative Party in the next campaign will be in a phenomenal position to offer Canadians the opportunity to be 
the next government of this country. But they need to do that. And they need to speak, I think, with some consistency and some clarity about what conservatism in the country looks like. You know, understand that, you know, in, in politics, you know, a lot of politicians think that a politics is about what politicians think and what their ideas are, what they want. Voters tend to think that elections are about them and their needs. And it's the voters who are right. It's about them and their needs. And so as a, as a party coming out of this, hopefully united, hopefully being thoughtful about it, presenting a contemporary set of policies through a conservative lens to a country that's ready for a new government, I think the Conservative Party can do very well, but they need to stay focused, disciplined, and united in the end. James Moore and Brad Wall, I'd love to chat for another half an hour about that, but that's the, uh, the tyrant of time that we have on television. Thank you so much. Brad Wall, former Saskatchewan Premier, James Moore, former Harper-era minister. Up next, a real estate reality check. The average price of a home in Canada is $800,000. Will Ottawa's housing affordability plans work? We've got one of Canada's top housing policy analysts with some answers. We have a housing affordability crisis in Canada. Everyone says so, including the federal government, which put lots of measures in the budget to deal with that problem. My next guest, Western University Business School professor Mike Moffat, has been thinking and writing about this problem for years most recently with the Smart Prosperity Institute right here at the University of Ottawa. Mike, great to see you. And you were looking over the budget. We all were. Housing was clearly the priority. Give me the nickel tour of what you saw in there, the good, the bad, the ugly. What did you make of it? Well, it absolutely was the center. It was chapter one right at the beginning. I think that the good parts were the recognition that we have a supply issue. The uh, the government is talking about uh, doubling supply over the next 10 years, going from about 1.9 million to 3.5 million new homes uh, across the country. I think that's fantastic. Um, I think the issue, the sort of uglier side or the bad side, is there's not really a plan to get there. That They're talking about this housing accelerator that uh, would add 100,000 homes, which is great, but that's you know about 5% of of the target that they've set for themselves. And I think the ugly part is some of the measures that they talk about is speculation. It gets a little bit into sort of blaming foreigners for our issues where, you know, there's a lot of domestic spe speculation that's going on. As we well, pointed out know. this week that cabinet members, I think of 11 or 12, are landlords themselves. So it's that's domestic. Well, exactly. And apparently it's different if it's uh, domestic. Right. Apparently it's different if MPs do it. But yeah, so I, I thought that was a little bit problematic uh, how they're kind of pinning it on, on non-Canadians, where you know, both Canadians and non-Canadians absolutely play a role in our housing market. So if supply is, is, is the issue, and I think a lot of people, you've written yeah. about this, it's a big problem. Um, but you know, the average price of a house is 800000 bucks or something like that right now, and that's spiked 11% in the last year. Does doubling the supply in a year or doubling the new builds, is that actually going to make homes more affordable? And, and how might you do that if you wanted to increase supply? Well, I, I think that last question is a hard one. How do you actually do that? So in theory, yes, if you were able to double supply, that that would cause affordability. And we're going to see uh, prices start to cool off as the Bank of Canada lowers, right. lowers interest rates. we got a big hike coming on, on June 1st. So absolutely, if we were able to double that, we would have uh, more affordable housing across the country. The key question is, how do you do it? You know, How do you actually uh, you know, get the zoning permits from municipalities? How do you get enough labor? Because uh, we know the skilled trades are, are getting older and we're not replacing them at the rate we need to. So there's all of these bottlenecks. And I think the issue for the federal government is most of those have to do with provincial policy, municipal policy, and decisions that higher education makes. There's not that many federal policy levers uh, open to the government. And this is the first uh, party leadership race I can recall, the Conservatives, where housing is actually one of the issues that certainly some candidates are talking about. Pierre Polyev is out there for 
for, he's been out there for the last couple of weeks saying if he's ever prime minister, he'll essentially withhold infrastructure money to big municipalities if they don't speed up building permits. Does this sound like an idea with something to, to chew on? Well, certainly, and we, we hear Ford, uh, Premier Ford, saying similar things in Ontario. And I, 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 the thing I find interesting about this is both Polyev and Trudeau have indicated that we need to do more at the municipal level. Uh, the policies don't actually seem that much different, but the tone is where Trudeau is talking about, okay, we'll work with municipalities, we have this housing accelerator. It's all about sort of carrots, where the Polyev side is more about sticks, but it's kind of the same thing where both of these party leaders, or, or perhaps future party leader, right. is, uh, I, I don't want to presuppose the outcome <laughs> of that race, but they're both talking about using the federal spending power to influence municipal decisions. Uh, just quickly, I, I want to just loop back on one thing you said. Probably the most influential policymaker here is going to be the Bank of Canada. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, with that uh, inflation print of 6.7%, which is higher than anybody was expecting, uh, you know, we were thinking that the next uh, Bank of Canada rate hike would be either 25 or 50 points. Now we're hearing it might be as much as 75. So if that happens on June 1st, you're going to see a lot of people pull back and go, okay, you know what, maybe I don't want to take out that five-year mortgage, buy that new home, given how expensive interest rates are going to be. Mike Moffitt from the Smart Prosperity Institute. Thanks so much for coming in. And that is our show for today, folks. Thank you so much for watching. I hope we'll see you next week on The West Block. I'm David Aiken. Have a great day.